Hi, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comet. Please consider subscribing if you haven't already. Last episode, General Tom Lawson, the former head of the Canadian Armed Forces, joined us to give us a big picture look at the war in Ukraine from a military perspective. For this episode, we're joined by a reporter on the ground in Ukraine to break down what life is like right now living in a country under brutal invasion. What are the people saying? What do they hope will happen next? What do they think will happen next? And is Putin going to get what he wants? Or is the inspiring pushback we've seen from the people of Ukraine going to ultimately prevail? Freelance journalist and Eastern European affairs expert Neil Howard joins us now. He's been writing for Post Media and also has bylines with CNN, The Atlantic, Foreign Policy, and many other publications. Hey, Neil, great to have you. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. You've got such a fascinating and and, and important and and obviously alarming story to tell about what's going on there right now. And uh, I want to hear what you're you're hearing from others, but I also want to hear just about your situation right now. Tell us, where are you right now? And and where were you a, a week ago? And what has been your... Uh, what has been your travels in Ukraine the past couple of weeks? Right. So right now I'm in uh, the city of Lviv, which is the, the capital of Western Ukraine, and uh, about 60, about 50, 70 kilometers from the border with Poland. So this is the, the sort of the terminus uh, for everyone fleeing the rest of the country, trying to get to, to Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, etc. And, you know, I'm in a cafe right now as the, the city is pretty overrun with uh, displaced people that are on their way to becoming refugees. And, you know, I, I've been here in Lviv for the last four days now after fleeing Kiev myself. I was in Kiev. Uh, I arrived in Ukraine a little over a month ago and I was in Kiev uh, when the war started last uh, week ago today, last Thursday, with uh, cruise missile strikes on the Ukrainian capital about uh, 5 a.m. local time and spent uh, the next two days in Kiev, you know, uh, hearing you know missile strikes uh, the first missile strikes each night and then on the second day even small arms gunfire from our, our apartment in downtown Kiev as Russian special forces had entered the city and then on Saturday managed to get on one of the the trains still leaving scrambling aboard there with everyone else and since then I've been in Western Ukraine. Wow. I mean, I can't imagine what that was like. Those of us over here in Canada, I mean, we remember that evening when the military operation, as Putin calls it, had started. And and we were, I guess it was like 10 p.m., 11 p.m. our time. And I remember just watching on Twitter and, you know, they call it doom scrolling and, and seeing in real time, okay, this this uh, this missile has hit and there's this explosion and you're watching, you're going, wow, can't believe I'm, I'm, I'm watching the live streaming of, of the commencement of this war. But you were watching it you know, literally from an apartment window. I, I know there was a, a number of weeks, I guess, months of will Putin, won't he, what will happen? How's it going to be? What was it like in that actual moment that waking up at 5 a.m. And, and it actually happening right in front of you? Yeah, I mean, it was all sort of this this slow build up here um, over a period of months. Uh, I, I mean, I came to Ukraine for that reason. I lived not super, super far away in Armenia, about a three hour flight away from Kiev. And so I came here as that was build up was happening and then watching it. And then, uh, you know, there, there was still a sense that uh, here, that thing that, you know, people downplayed the, the possibility that who could have ima- who could imagine a full scale invasion from Russia, the largest country in Europe, just launching a full invasion of the second largest country in Europe. But uh, the mood definitely changed here starting Monday last week after Putin gave that speech where he ended up recognizing the two separatist republics. And then people began to understand, OK, this is something different. This is really looking bad. And then, uh, yeah, suddenly at 5 a.m. Kiev time uh, on that, that, that Wednesday, 
it was, you know, the, over the course of the, the first explosions over the course of the next two hours, probably 15 or so, as uh, the cruise missiles hit the capital. And yeah, wild stuff. What was the immediate reaction from individuals? Was it? I mean, we, we we've seen those videos of uh, obviously children hunkered in in, in subway systems and in, in shelters. Some of those happening, you know, days after things began. Uh, you know, pictures of some people screaming. But we've also seen uh, pictures of of normalcy in terms of someone with a briefcase, seemingly wherever that person was going, walking to work or what have you, with uh, in the background of a CNN report or, or some sort of live stream. So there's there's. Yeah, what were people doing with their regular day? I mean, pretty much as soon as it happened in Kiev, life changed uh, very dramatically immediately. I mean, that, yeah. that, that first day, Thursday, um, it was already, you know, the streets largely empty, still a few people out and about, but most shops closed. Uh, bank machines were not working, most of them, and the ones that did severely limited the amount of money you could withdraw. And, you know, even then, just walking down the, the street in central Kiev, uh, about 3 p.m., suddenly the air raid siren goes off, and uh, everyone has to run to the nearest uh, the nearest shelter. And the, so, so the the daily life, you know, people still going about it a little bit, but it changed very rapidly into you know just sort of a, a desolate environment, really in Kiev. Now, being in the most western city, uh, further removed from the most acute points of military action, what is it like day to day? I know you're in a cafe right now. Are people uh, just in the cafe to do as you're doing, sort of to to, to talk to other people about the situation and, and people connecting with loved ones? Or are there people just chilling out, hanging out? Is there, a, is there a, a daily life going on in Lviv right now? Yeah, there is certainly some semblance of daily life happening here. I mean, there is curfew at 10 p.m., so you have to be off the streets by then, and that means most things close around uh, eight, eight or nine. But uh, and you know some place, a lot of places aren't open. But there is still, you know, but in the in the daylight hours here, some semblance of day, daily life going on as well. I mean, there there's very few places to stay in the city. You know, many most uh, residences are, are clogged up with people fleeing the rest of the country. But at the same time, you know, it's a massively different scene here than it was than it is in Kiev. There's, of course, been a lot of concerns about uh, civilian injuries, civilian fatalities, uh, war crimes basically going on based on how uh, Putin is is conducting this this quote unquote operation. Uh, what are you seeing? What are you hearing from that perspective? I mean, absolutely. Like the, the, the it opened, I think, with uh, a lot less of just this shock and awe than most people were, than most military experts had expected, where they they imagined, right. you know just a massive barrage all across Ukraine. And it was more restrained in those early hours, but then, especially in the, the last few days uh, after the, the the Russians seemingly Putin really thought that this would be over in two or three days that they would just walk into the cities and seize control of key infrastructure and take over, uh, but that didn't play out. You know, the so the the lighter columns, the columns of lighter armored vehicles of Russian special forces and paratroopers that that tried to seize the cities were destroyed, and now the Russians, especially in Kiev and in Kharkiv. Uh, on the, in the city in the northeast, that's Ukraine's second largest city, they're resorting to more of this uh, indiscriminate bombardment strategy of trying to break down the, the, the will of the defenders and the will of the population. And definitely people have remarked that there is quite a will for the defenders, quite a fighting spirit among among so many individuals, whether it's, of course, Ukrainian forces who are who are employed to do that. Zelensky himself. We've seen those images of of uh, regular citizens uh, arming themselves. People saying a couple months ago, I would have never envisioned myself picking up arms. Now I'm doing it. Uh, tell us about that. What are people saying about about their feelings of defending their own country? 
Absolutely. I mean, the, the response to this has been so tremendous. Uh, I think in the first few days, the first day or two, people were just sort of in a state of shock. But then that resolve hardened very quickly. And, you know, already on the first day, the government announced that if you want to defend the city in Kiev, we come to the come to the armories, we will give you a Kalashnikov. And already within the first few days, tens of thousands of people took that up. And the, the, the scale of it has been such that I'm talking to people in Kiev who went to try and enlist in those militias, enlist in the territorial defense force, and were turned away because they cannot handle the amount of volunteers that they have. Wow. I've even seen it with other people, you know, uh, a friend of a friend who we took the train from Kiev to Lviv with. Uh, she was initially planning, you know, she's 29 years old, uh, fitness instructor, and she was initially planning on, on leaving to Poland and then decided after arriving in Lviv, no, I'm going to stay and make Molotov cocktails. And, the, you know, these are sorts of stories that are just all over the place here. And to what degree is that playing out? People are, are getting in a fighting position, they're getting prepared, but what is the volume of regular citizens actually engaged in firefights, in combat, in throwing those Molotov cocktails at Russian forces right now? I mean, I think it's quite a bit, you know, especially in uh, Kiev and Kharkiv, the two cities that are, are seeing the, the most fighting um, in Kiev, as I can tell, it's become uh, a pretty fortified place in the last few days. You know, that what initially started as makeshift barricades in the streets have been reinforced with cranes, uh, excavators bringing in, uh, you know, reinforced concrete and setting up barricades all across the main, main streets of the capital. And, uh, you know, it, it, we've seen videos as well of Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian civilians driving past Russian armored vehicles in their cars and then leaning out the window and throwing Molotov cocktails at the Russian tanks and, you know, just some, some of these incredible scenes. Neil, we've seen various postings on social media of Russian soldiers uh, being taken captive or, or waving the white flag, basically saying, OK, I surrender. And then some very compassionate videos of Ukrainians uh, giving a cup of tea and saying you can now call your mother back in Russia. To what degree are these anomalous? But they're putting them out there to say, hey, look, we're at least scoring these these minor occasional victories. And to what degree is this a sense of, yeah, like, you know, we're, we're really doing well here as, as, as defenders, Ukrainians? I mean, I think this is becoming one of the, the key trends that we're seeing here in the last few days is that, you know, uh, a lot of these Russian soldiers really don't want to be there in that you know, the, the, the sense really is that uh, as we see in here again and again from these captured Russian soldiers is that they were just told you're on exercises. Uh, there's not, you're just out there doing this exercise. They did not know there was going to be an invasion. And a lot of them, you know, they're officially all contract soldiers, but a lot of them were press ganged into it, essentially. They were contracts. They were conscripts doing their mandatory military service, who were then forced to sign a contract uh, or threatened with consequences. And then after that point, you know, forced into this invasion of Ukraine, which they didn't know was happening and which they don't want to be involved in, especially a war that is not just some easy walkover, but um, where they have a very real chance of dying. And so in the last few days, we've seen, you know, so many videos of even even whole Russian units basically dropping their arms or walking over to the Ukrainian side. Wow. So who really wants this conflict? Is it just Vladimir Putin? Absolutely. I mean, it absolutely seems like that. You know, we've seen the, the videos from the, the very first day across Russia. In the first day alone in Russia, there was protests against the war in 53 different cities. And this is despite the fact that, uh, in the, that the, the laws in Russia are so draconian that if you merely make a, uh, a post on social media, on Facebook, about some sort of uh, anti-war stance, you can, you can and often are arrested for that and charged. And you can be in prison for 10 years just for that. 
And despite this fact, you know, there have been thousands of people uh, coming out into the streets in Russia protesting, saying no to war, saying, no, we do not want this war. And so, it, you know, as I saw put well by another another analyst here a little while ago, Putin is fighting two wars now, both at, in Ukraine and at home. It was remarkable to see some of that footage of protests happening in major Russian cities and police go up, law enforcement go in and take away an anti-war banner that a few protesters have. They drag the three of them away from the edges of the protest. And you're like, okay, you're going to arrest three people. You do realize there are 300 or or 1000 other people right there as well. I mean, can they clamp down on all of this sentiment? I mean, it, it, the, the, the silver lining for the authorities in Russia is that it's so difficult to organize mass scale protests that um, you know, there's really all these things are completely uncoordinated in terms. Of, they're all just people showing up randomly to Central Square and hoping other people will be there uh, because you can't organize anything at all. But uh, already a couple days ago, there was reports that the detention centers in, in Moscow and St. Petersburg, Russia's two biggest cities, are full. You know, they, they've arrested uh, he's confirmed at least five or six thousand people. And there, there's no more space in those detention centers. That is massive. Six thousand people arrested for this and to your point no more space how long can they keep this going is it your sense that uh, russian opposition to the war will i guess be muted because of these arrests or are people just saying no i mean we're feeling the economic consequences uh, we're going to keep protesting i mean this situation in russia especially now the last two days is crazy in terms of the the economy started to absolutely tank as a result of these massive uh, these massive sanctions the currency's tanking tons of services are not available uh, like things like Apple and, and Google are not available there anymore. And, you know, so people have started fleeing Russia en masse. Like I talked to one one Russian friend yesterday and she said, literally all my friends are shoving clothes in a suitcase and getting on the first flight out because the sense is that there, there's a real, there's a strong possibility that tomorrow they will introduce martial law in Russia and ban all flights from the country. And so people are trying to get out before that happens as a, basically the Iron Curtain is coming down again. I want to ask you the million dollar question that everybody's talking about right now, and I want to get your perspective on it. What does Putin want? I mean, Putin seems to want essentially to destroy Ukraine as an independent and viable state. You know, not to, it'd be nice if he could, it would have been nice for him if he could have just walked in and taken over the government and the, the country and put in some pliable administration in the space of 48 or 72 hours. But if that's not a possibility, then at the very least, you know, destroy Ukraine as a place that can sit there as a country that can exist and have make its own choices and be able to have, you know, an anti-Russian orientation and make it so that Ukraine cannot possibly exist as a place with uh, as, as a functional independent state with uh, a potentially anti-Russian position. So we had some individuals saying, and this was what it, I think seemed like to a lot of people early on, that it was really just about carving out uh, further eastern territory, those two regions, Donetsk and Luhansk. We've clearly seen that's not the case because of what's going on uh, in the capital. Then we've got others with a more sort of maximal perspective saying, well, if he's going to do Ukraine, what stops him from crossing over into another border? A lot of people say, well, hold on a second. Those are NATO boundaries. So that's the big difference there. But you, you, you've got the, the smaller view and then you've got the enlarged view. Where does the truth sit uh, you seem to be suggesting that this is a conflict that is uh, primarily focused on on the identity of ukraine yeah absolutely and i think you know putin himself made that very clear when he gave this speech last monday the one in which he recognized the two separatist republics in eastern ukraine but the first 30 40 minutes of that speech was just this insane rant about how ukraine is not a real country how it was created by lenin and the bolsheviks and by the russians themselves 
and how now it's 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 not even being run by Ukraine, but it's being by Ukrainians, but it's being run by um, this fascist um, U.S. puppet regime, which exists only to hold Ukrainians themselves hostage. And they're the brother brother people of Russia, who, of Russians who must be freed from this foreign domination. And he made it very clear that he does not think you, Ukraine has a right to exist or is a real country at all. Where does the truth lie in terms of the sentiments going on among Ukrainians, particularly of those in the East? Uh, I've seen the the public opinion surveys that are actually from Russian news agencies, so let's just call them propaganda, talking about a very high percentage of people in Eastern Ukraine who aren't happy being in Ukraine. They want to join Russia. They want to separate. And obviously, Putin is, is significantly ramping up those numbers. But at the same time, I know the percentage is not zero in terms of the people in the East who have those views. So so what's what's really going on with that question of identity uh, in eastern Ukraine? I mean, Ukraine, you know, as a country always was, pre-2014, was always quite uh, split and, you know, plenty of people with uh, fond memories of the, the Soviet Union or fond relations with Russian people. You know, everyone has relatives in Russia somewhere. And uh, you plenty of, Ukraine has, would always be between these two sides, between balancing between the, the having strong links to Russia, but also having uh, increasing links with the West as well. And then after the invasion in 2014 and the annexation of Crimea, uh, that shifted very heavily against Russia, and people began to have the, this, this. This is sort of you know the ultimate irony of Putin's of all Putin's moves here is that um, in order in in trying to deter Ukraine from joining NATO and or joining the EU or having Western orientation, he's made it made he's guaranteed that everyone in the country hates Russia. And now you know now that the Russians are. Have launched this full-scale invasion. You know there is no sentiment here except for just hatred of of Russia and of Putin because they're they're actively every day indiscriminately bombarding cities. So you could not have have made a policy choice that would have more guaranteed that Ukraine will be an anti-Russian state forever. There are so many images that uh, Canadians are seeing that are shocking, upsetting to them. Uh, images of the Children's Cancer Hospital being under siege. And a lot of voices say, why can't we do more? And there is an appetite, uh, not just among online sort of Twitter voices, but even a, a number of prominent official individuals, uh, basically talking about getting more involved in a military sense. Uh, but we've got Jen Stoltenberg, uh, head of NATO, saying that ain't going to happen. And they were on the record months ago saying they're not going to do that. Uh, President Biden, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying similar things things. What is your perspective on the role in which Western forces, NATO forces uh, do want to have any further involvement? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the degree to which it's going to happen is essentially what we're already seeing, you know, um, tons of, of, of arms deliveries, especially anti-aircraft and anti, anti-tank shoulder fired missiles, which have already come into what many thousands of which have already arrived in Ukraine. And we've seen people like like places like Germany, Germany, which was always, you know, against this sort of any sort of military aid to Ukraine or anything. Over the weekend, um, uh, Chancellor Schultz basically undid 30 years of, of German policy in, in one speech and said this is an existential threat for, for European security and we are standing with Ukraine. But the one thing there's not going to be is a no-fly zone or direct NATO involvement because there's a lot of people clamoring for a no-fly zone, a NATO no-fly zone over Ukraine. But then what happens? You shoot down a Russian, if a Russian plane's there and you shoot it down, now you are actively risking uh, an escalation that could that could very conceivably lead to war between Russia and the West and war between and nuclear war as well. So there will never be some sort of no-fly zone here. 
there are a lot of concerns about uh, Vladimir Putin raising the prospect of upping the the nuclear uh, awareness level, whatever the technical term is. But I understand there's there's four levels in Russia, and he only upped them to level two as opposed to uh, going full scale at level four. Is this just a threat? Is this a, a serious uh, look into the minds of Russian military strategy? How do you approach that issue? Yeah, that's correct. That's that's good that, that you mentioned that because that is it was the the second of the the four readiness levels that he moved it to there. And, you know, of course, with nuclear nuclear matters, you never want to to downplay anything or take anything lightly. But at the same time, the, the fact that Putin does that is the sign of weakness, not of strength. It's a sign that he has few cards left to play. And, you know, this sort of uh, nuclear bluff, this sort of nuclear brinksmanship is, is one of them because the war is not going well for Russia. Uh, we can say that uh, w- without reservations, really. And so at that point, you know, he's trying to dissuade uh, any arms deliveries by raising the by raising the readiness of the nuclear forces. But, you know, clearly, as he did that, it hasn't worked. We'll be back with more full comment in just a moment after these messages. Neil Hauer, I know you mentioned that originally Vladimir Putin was thinking or hoping and even many military strategists were thinking this would be concluded in just a couple of days. We're seeing that's not the case. Instead, uh, Russian forces are getting perhaps more entrenched, although there's some supply line issues. Ukrainian opposition definitely getting more entrenched and getting support from various Western nations. What is the time horizon here in terms of what we're facing? Are we facing something that uh, could unfortunately be a, a months-long uh, invasion and certain uh, insurgency, counterinsurgency. What does the future look like right now on the ground? I mean, this is the big question. And you know, if we're if let, let's say that you know military operations just uh, allowed to proceed at their current pace, then that could easily be you know months, weeks, months, because you know Russian forces are making some significant advances, especially in the south. Yesterday, they seems like they captured their first major city in uh, Ukraine, the southern port city of Kherson, which is about three hundred thousand people. And they've besieged now the the southeastern port city of Mariupol, which is about four hundred five about five hundred thousand people. So those are some serious advances. But at the same time, you know, near Kharkiv and Kiev, they have made no real headway in the last couple of days. But the 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 thing to watch, especially for for me, I think, is how is this going to uh, unfold in Russia? I mean, are they even going to be in a position? Are they even going to be able to? Uh, to continue persecuting this war with the way the economy is going to absolutely collapse and even just critical materials i mean even just things like ammunition manufacture and weapons manufacture will they even be able to continue doing that as the 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 full effect of these absolutely basically being cut off from the 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 world market continue to unfold over the next couple of weeks we've already seen initial reports of of various russian uh tanks and, and and different groups of forces uh, stopping shorter in their advance than they would like to because of fuel issues or other concerns. And I got to say that sounds this early on kind of amateur hour when it comes to military planning. Yeah, I mean, I keep saying, I think the the, the way the Russians lose this war, as it, 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 if in fact it plays out that way, is going to be morale and logistics. You know, the with the the, the main and the, the, the biggest example of this being this convoy that's that's 40 kilometers long north of Kiev and at 40 kilometers it's not a convoy it's a traffic jam and so <laughs> and these these vehicles have been sitting there you know as the, the UK MOD said yesterday um, we have seen no discernible progress in over three days and those vehicles are sitting there and it's zero degrees so you have to you have to be running them about half the time burning fuel and once those vehicles are out of fuel which will be soon 
there's no good way to refuel them all and get them moving. And the Ukrainians are, the Ukrainian jets are already hitting this column. And, you know, this is just like a, a logistics catastrophe. And that, that, that is uh, really how a lot of these wars play out. You know, strategies win ta- and tactics win battles, but logistics win wars. Speaking about catastrophe, a refugee catastrophe that a lot of warnings that there's a lot of refugees now flooding out of Western Ukraine. You're at the most Western uh, major city, Lviv, right now. What are you seeing in terms of the refugee situation? Yeah, absolutely. And so we were at the the border ourselves two days ago and uh, the main crossing with Poland. And as you get down there, there is a line of cars about 10 to 12 kilometers long uh, all the way up to the border. And that, as we, as people told us, that takes about uh, three or four days to get through that if you want to leave with your car. If you want to leave on foot, if you're Ukrainian and you get to the border, you can go across quite quickly. But if you are, um, if you're not Ukrainian, you know, there's, there's quite a large number of students and workers from the Middle East, from India, from Sub-Saharan Africa in Ukraine. And these people are, are held at the border for, you know, as we saw there, some of the, they have been there for days already and sleeping there outside, um, lack of food and water as in both the Ukrainian and uh, Polish authorities are hesitant to process them. They don't have the correct documents or some combination of that. So that is uh, becoming a big problem. Here we're hearing accusations of racism at the border when it comes to refugees crossing from Ukraine into Poland. A a few African nations discussing this and it's making its way uh, into various media reports. Is this a question of people just not having the right documentation or or do you believe there is uh, either overt or or at least sort of uh, implicit racism going on in these border policies? I mean, it's hard to say. I, I have not looked into it super closely. I'm sure it's a combination of the two, you know, where people from with, with countries that are not visa-free to Schengen um, cannot get across so easily and the procedures have not been waived for them. But at the same time too, you know, the border guards, both on the Polish and Ukrainian side can certainly be much rougher with people of darker complexions than they would be with uh, a white Ukrainian or if I was to cross. Um, so, and the, 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 the treatment for um, people of the European complexion will certainly be better. So it's a, it's a combination of these issues. Speaking of racism issues, Vladimir Putin, when he was announcing the military operation, his original pretext, or at least one of the pretexts, is was he's going to denazify Ukraine. And a lot of people did a double take and go, "What on earth are you talking about?" I mean, the uh, the the head of Ukraine, Zelensky himself, is a, is a Jewish man. What are you talking about? Uh, then again, I see a few years ago in the National Post a headline: uh, Our former conservative government, are we arming neo-Nazi battalions in the Ukraine army? You go, "What on earth is behind the headlines there?" And they've got this. This group, the, the Azov Brigade, which is believed to have some contingent of neo-Nazis in eastern Ukraine. What, what's going on with all of these allegations? Because there's a lot of uh, a lot of propaganda all across the board. What, what should we make of, of, of that narrative? I mean, sure, there are groups with uh, there are far groups with uh, that are either adjacent to or directly far right here, of course. I mean, and the Azov Brigade itself you know, has quite a bit of this sim- symbolism and is also uh, quite popular, especially in the southeast where they're engaged in fighting. Um, and it's one of the more popular um, uh, paramilitary militia groups for for volunteers to join. But at the same time, you know, in in elections in Ukraine, these groups have never surpassed one percent of the national vote. Um, they're 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 not uh, a mainstream political force, and they're they're not going to be. You know, of course, U- Ukraine is a city with uh, Ukraine is a country with uh, one of the largest Jewish populations on earth, including, as you said, the, the president. And there are Jewish militias fighting in this, the city of Dnipro uh, against uh, the Russian 
Russian uh, invading forces. So the the whole narrative denazification is just as bizarre claim from and just this 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 the the latest a long attempt string of attempts to find some flimsy pretext for the Russians to launch their invasion. Neil, there's a, a lot of calls for action here in the West, a lot of perspectives on what should happen next, how this should unfold. You've got the on-the-ground perspective. You've also got the academic expertise in terms of Eastern European affairs. What is the What would be your pragmatic best-case scenario? What do you think is going to happen in the next few weeks? Pragmatic best-case scenario, I think, is that you know the Russian war effort just continues to collapse. Um, and in, in terms of the, the issues with morale and logistics only getting worse. And, you know, the fact that it, it's easy to, to block real information in Russia from getting to people. I mean, people are only fed state propaganda. But at the same time, if when people wake up and they go to withdraw their paycheck and it's suddenly worth half as much as it was a week ago, then, they'll, then they realize something's up. And the, the hope is that that will translate to some sort of, uh, you know, mass crisis and mass dissatisfaction that Putin will not be able to survive. And the, 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 the military balance of play is such that, you know, the Ukrainian forces have received such a, so many of these really impactful weapons, you know, the, the anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles so the, in the last few days that, that that will enable them to exact even more damage than they already are on the Russian forces and blunt the, the attack. So I think that the, the ideal scenario is that Russia's, uh, Putin's war machine here itself just collapses on the home front in the next few weeks. So what happens to Putin? Because while it would be good for them to fail, of course, I don't think failure, at least on a grand scale, is something Putin is used to. And uh, it's better for global stability that none of this be happening in Ukraine. But it's also not good for global stability that you have a a dictator of a superpower with nuclear weapons who suddenly feels uh, like he's a rat in a corner, uh, whether it's with, you know, Western nations, Ukraine or even his own oligarchs. So how does Putin respond to that scenario? I mean, that, that is the, the big question, right? And uh, this is something that we're, we're truly beyond beyond the pale with and that we don't know. There's, there's no real precedent in um, modern Russian history for what, what would occur in this. I think uh, a lot of people think that the, the best thing would be some sort of palace coup where enough of the this other security elites in Moscow um, end up reaching this conclusion that we are not, that under that, that Putin has lost it and under his leadership things are bad and only getting worse and, you know, somehow overthrow him. But the, 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 the way that that would actually play out is we don't really know. And the, the, that, that's the sheer fact of the matter is that, you know, mass public protests are, have never really brought down a government in Russian history, even in the, 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 the Bolshevik or revolution or the, the, the end of the Soviet Union. It was much more of an elite affair. And so it's, we're, we're sort of in uncharted waters with all this. Before we go, I want to ask your thoughts on, on how we engage and interact with the Russian people moving forward here, because as many people have said, the, the grievance is with Putin. It's not with regular folks in Russia. Uh, hockey agent Dan Milstein posted uh, quite prominently on social media, the Canadian Junior Hockey League will announce that Russian and Belarusian 16 and 17 year old children would be banned from the upcoming draft. Uh, Mr. Milstein writes, I am Ukrainian born and want peace. I do not believe banning teenagers for something they do not control is the answer. Here in Canada, there are already minor stories of uh, of disagreements, skirmishes, uh, even some violence between people of, of Ukrainian descent, Russian descent, uh, Russian descent. 
what what are your hopes for sort of moving forward peaceably in a way that uh, avoids all of this? Yeah, I mean, I saw that with the CHL, and that's just so disappointing because you know I have the, I get the idea of punishing Russia and you, you, it sanctions uh, as a whole, but against you know state linked companies and stand the, the branches of the state. Um, not against 16-year-old hockey players who now are going to be forbidden from coming, being drafted by Canadian teams and coming over to their own. You know, there's a there's there's a line that you have to draw between the Russian state and then between just ethnic Russians as people. You know, there's 150, 200 million of them, and you can't treat them as responsible for the actions of the state because that's the same logic terrorists use. You know, the 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 people are responsible for the crimes of the regime. So I think you know the the. And the, the, this talk of you know, banning Russians from getting EU visas and everything is is really uh, really awful, and would be the what the worst thing you could do is to lock Russians there inside the sinking ship that that is the Putin's Russia as the economy continues to deteriorate, and you have to give these people a way out. You have to allow them to uh, to, to to get out of that that situation if you want them to, and especially if, as you're hoping, you know they'll be out there risking their lives and their freedom uh, protesting against this war. This has been a really informative, no-spin conversation. Neil Hauer, I appreciate you joining us, uh, offering us this on-the-ground perspective and with your expertise. Thanks so much, Neil. Thank you so much for having me. All the best. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru, with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.